My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic everybody. Hi, Bob. It's good to be here. It's good to be sober this evening. And I'm a member of the 31W group in Louisville, Kentucky. We meet on Monday night at 8 o'clock, and if you're ever in Louisville, we'd be glad to have you. And I'm a member in good standing in that group. Uh, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting Wani and I up. And, uh, Mindy mentioned the fact we're having fun. I'm not having fun yet. I, the fun will start when this thing is over in, in about an hour here, and then I can have some fun. But uh, it is good to be here. It's good to be sober. I'm always glad to participate in any type of AA function. Uh, it's really a, a story in how I got here, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, I didn't know I was supposed to be here, and uh, I, don't think I, I don't think anyone else knew I was supposed to be here, but I happened to be in Evansville, Indiana, uh, talking one night and at a club down there, and I looked at the bulletin board, and it said Bob W. from Louisville, Kentucky was talking here. And, and I didn't know any Bob W. other than myself in Louisville, and I knew, or at least I thought I had not accepted any engagement to speak. Uh, so when I got back Sunday morning, I called Karen to find out, and she said, oh, thank God you called. <laughs> they were trying to find my number, and uh, uh, they needed a speaker, and uh, it was just an accident. The program was printed Bob W. But, you know, in AA, everything works out. It'll, uh, only only that something like that could happen in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous without uh, uh, it being some hard feelings and some resentments. Uh, uh, th things just seem to rock along if we let them in this program. But I want to tell you a little bit about my drinking. I, 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 I did drink a little bit when I was younger. Uh, uh, I started my drinking when I was about 16 years old. I think I was a chronic alcoholic by the time I was 17 years old. Uh, I had something happen to me that kind of uh, set a pattern in my life. Uh, we, we'd taken beer to school, and uh, the janitor liked to drink with us. We'd go down in the barley room, us boys, and we'd drink down there. Uh, one day the uh, principal walked in, caught us down there drinking, and we were taken up to the office and reprimanded for this. Uh, we got, got by with it because played, I played sports. But that janitor got fired. He was fired that day. And being a good alcoholic, I picked up on that right away. It was his fault that we drank. And you know, I used that excuse, or one just like it, for the next 15 or 16 years. Anytime anyone began to point the finger at me about my drinking, or, or, or the problems my drinking was creating, I could very conveniently turn that situation around and blame somebody else. Uh, when I was 17 years old, uh, Wani and I, we dated all through high school. We, we broke up a lot through high school. She, uh, she knew a little bit about alcoholism. She had an uncle who was an alcoholic and eventually committed suicide. And she knew, she'd seen what had happened in his life. And she tried to tell me when I was 17 years old, when I drank a bottle of beer, she said it changed my personality. And I told her she was nuts. It didn't change my personality. She was the one that changed. And, you know, we, we were both right. Uh, we kept uh, dating through high school, and uh, when I graduated from high school, I had a chance to play professional baseball. I went away with the Cleveland organization, and uh, I lasted three weeks with them because of my drinking. They sent me back, and uh, they could not tolerate my attitude and my drinking, and uh, I said I really didn't want to play ball, that uh, I was thinking about getting married. Monty and I were not even dating steady at that time. But I got back to Louisville, and uh, Monty and I started dating again, and uh, uh, she told me she would never marry me because of my drinking. And I gave her a, an engagement ring one night, or I tried to give it to her, and she wouldn't accept it. She said, I told you I'd never marry you the way you drink. And I said, do you think that after we're married and I have responsibility that I'll drink like this? And I, I guess Wani believed me, and uh, the baffling thing about this, I believe me too. I thought responsibility would keep me from drinking. But I'll assure you tonight, responsibility will not keep this alcoholic from drinking. Wani and I got married. We had seven children, and she was pregnant with the eighth child, and I was still drinking. And to me, that's a little bit of responsibility. I don't know how you feel about it. Uh, Wani and I, we now have nine children. But, you know, after we got married, I had a mother-in-law that began to get in the picture. I don't think you all ever had a mother-in-law problem or not. I, uh, Really, I was in AA and I was sober a couple of weeks before I knew I had a drinking problem. I thought I had a mother-in-law problem, is what I thought. Uh, but when we first got married, my mother-in-law built an apartment. It allowed me to move in, one in and I moved into that apartment. It never charged us a penny's rent. And 
She built it right next door to where she lived, and after I was there for a while, I knew why she did that. She was over telling me what I should be doing, mostly what I shouldn't be doing. And I began to resent that woman a little bit, and that resentment eventually grew to hatred and almost killed her one night. Now, my mother-in-law was in the real estate business, and we, we really hated one another. She hated my drinking, and I hated her meddling in my affairs. But my mother-in-law had been successful in the real estate business. She offered to take me as a partner in that business when I was uh, just 20 years old. And this is one time one and I sat down and talked about something. She said, you, you could never make this work going into the business with, with someone you hate. Y'all can't agree on anything. How are you going to do this? And I was interested in one thing at the time, that God Almighty dollar. I knew with money in my pocket I could buy happiness, peace of mind, the love of my wife, the love of my children, respect of everybody in the community. I'm here to tell you tonight, this alcoholic could not do it with money in his pocket. I was very successful in the real estate business for about three or four years. I went up the ladder real fast. I specialized in selling taverns. Seemed to be the thing I knew best. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd, we'd been in business about three years, and uh, we was working out of my mother-in-law's house, had a big front porch across her house, and we talked about someday we're going to build a new office here. And I thought it was a real good idea, and uh, my mother-in-law made the mistake of taking a vacation. She was going to be gone for six or eight weeks, and she no more than pulled out the driveway, and a uh, builder who drank the same way that I did worked in the company, except he's not an alcoholic. He's still the same way today. Uh, we decided now's a good time to build that office. She's gone. We got out of bulldozer, pushed front porch off my mother-in-law's house, and built an office while she was gone. And... Uh, I never thought anything about this. My, my mother-in-law thought a lot about it when she got back. and uh, it, it, it just about broke the company. And uh, uh, It was shortly after this, about, oh, about a year and a half after that, that I had to sell my half of that business to my mother-in-law. Uh, the company was just about put the company in bankruptcy. And, uh, my uh, mother-in-law came up with a brilliant idea to buy me out of this business. And I, I, thought, I thought really it was a great idea because... Uh, but this time, one day, it was already running me down wanting money. And she used to come down to the tavern I drank at all the time, and she'd want money. She'd say the kids need milk or uh, bread. It was something I didn't really think was necessary. And I'd give her $10 and send her on the way, and it wouldn't be a week later, and she'd be down there again wanting more money. And, and, and I used to tell her all the time, I'd say, what in the hell did you do with that 10 I gave you last week, woman? And... Uh, so when my mother-in-law came up with this idea of buying me out, I thought, you know, this thing's going to work. I can put that money in the bank, and uh, I can sit down at that tavern and drink beer all day long and pay clean alcohol. And if and when one of ever catches up with me, I can whip out that checkbook and send her, give her some money and send her on her way. And I thought everything was going to work fine. We went in the attorney's office that day, and uh, I signed the papers. I saw what it was. I sold my half the business to my mother-in-law, and uh, I didn't pay attention to what I signed. And... Uh, they got out the checkbook, and that got my attention. They started paying off the bills all we owed. And then they wrote me out a, a check for my half of the business. What was left was $7.85. And I was 25 years old when this took place. And you know, the cunning and baffling thing about alcohol is I never once ever thought about alcohol having anything to do that I lost that business because of, of drinking. I thought my mother-in-law stole that business from me, and I'd get even with her someday for that. You know, it was about this time the kids began to come along, and uh, one of the, after the kids grew a little older, one of them began to talk to me about divorce. And uh, I don't know if any of y'all ever talked about divorce around your house or not, but we talked about divorce like everybody else talks about the weather. We discussed it every week or so. And, uh, and I, I knew how to get one of y'all on my back. You know, she'd start complaining, going to threaten divorce, and I'd say, what do you want? I want you to quit drinking. And I would for a week or ten days, and then we kissed and made up, and... and uh, I always went right back to drinking. We'd we done a lot of making up because we got nine children now. <laughs> but she got real serious one time about this divorce. And I, I don't know if any, anybody in here uh, has ever been drowned a pledge or not, but if you haven't, you don't have to be. Stay here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and do it the easy and the comfortable way. I've tried it both ways, and it's a whole lot easier here in this program of AA. But one had some... I lived in a little town called Shively, and, and I'd worked to help get the mayor elected and... Uh, and the sheriff and everything, and one night the deputy sheriff knocked on my door and, and gave me some papers. And I read them, I saw what they were, and I, did, I was a smart aleck drunk. I just ripped them in half and gave them back to him. I knew him, and I said, take these things back, I don't want them. He said, Bob, you better read those. Marm, you sober up, the judge has already signed these. 
And I read them the next morning, and, she, and to this day I cannot remember how much alimony one wanted, but I got down to that paragraph, you know, where it says child support, and I read that one very carefully. She wanted $40 a week for each child that we had. And I wasn't too drunk to multiply six times 40. I could do that. And, and what it amounted to, I could not afford a divorce. So I go down and talk to Father what I should do with this nutty woman I'm living with. And uh, Father and I were sitting down there having a highball together. Father had the same problem I did. And <clears throat> he got one in on the phone and said, Get down here, I want to talk to you. And I thought, Man, this is going to work out great. I've got Father on my side now. But one of told Father a little different story than what I'd been telling him. And I think this is one time in my life I really wanted to make a change. Uh, I never once thought about stop drinking. That, that never crossed my mind. But I, I knew I was going places I shouldn't be going. I knew I was with people I shouldn't be with. And I was doing a lot of things I shouldn't be doing. And I wanted to be a good father and a good husband, but alcohol always got in the way. And Father one one came up with a brilliant idea I'll take a pledge. And I knew what a pledge was. I, I read it very carefully. I signed that paper. I promised God I wouldn't touch alcohol in any form for one year. I thought, what is this? Nothing to it. Hell, you put the plug in the jug, you don't drink. It's that simple. Wasn't that simple for this alcoholic, I'll tell you. Because I wanted to drink every day, and I couldn't drink because I'd signed that pledge, and she'd still had that divorce hanging on my head. Uh, <coughs> when I'd come home from work, uh, wanted to gather those kids up. She'd send them down to the basement or send them outside. Don't say, say anything to upset Dad. Because he'll, he'll go out here and drink. Probably, probably the worst thing of all would be uh, when I'd wake up in the morning. I'd roll over and look at my wife, Juanita, laying there next to me. And I started every day this way for six months. Now, I wasn't brave enough to say this out loud. I just thought it every morning. But I'd look at her and I'd start my day with looking at her and saying, thinking, damn you, I hate you. You know, I got to get up and I go to work today and I can't drink because of you. And you know, that's a tough way to live. I lasted six months that way, and one of you said many times in now and on, thank God that I did go out and take that drink, because it relieved all that pressure that we'd been living under. And you know, these, these kids are the ones that were really hurt, and this disease of alcoholism was brought into this family. Uh, these kids didn't ask to be brought into this. But I, I can remember so many times, one of you talking about, what this is doing to the kids. And I tried so many times to see if uh, my drinking affected my children in any way. And always, I guess I took that inventory probably on a Monday morning after a terribly bad weekend. I'd be, into that, be in that bathroom staring in that mirror, you know, those bloodshot eyes. My face would be red and swollen. I'd get the dry heaves and I'd hang my head in that commode. And then I'd get to thinking about what I had been preaching about all week, about what this is doing to these kids. And I always come up with the same answer. I don't know what the hell she's complaining about. These kids got a roof over their head and they've got shoes on their feet and there's food on the table. I'm the guy that's hurting today. I'm the guy that has to pull myself together and go out here and go to work and earn a few bucks so these kids got all these nice things. But I know tonight what Juanita was talking about when she talked about what this was doing to these children. I can remember many times coming home from work, pulling in that driveway, and I'd see those two oldest daughters of mine now coming out that kitchen door and skipping across the porch and down the sidewalk meet dad and he got off from work. I'd open that car door and I'd stumble up that driveway in a drunken stupor. And I'd see those two little kids, a smile drop off her face. And their little heads would hang and they'd turn around and walk back in the house because waiting for a drunken father. That hadn't happened to me in 39 years around this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have not done anything that my children had to hang their heads and be ashamed of me. And if that's all I got out of this program, it would be worth it. But there's so many fringe benefits that's come my way. I can remember Coming home a lot of times at 10.30 at night. One, one he had a bad habit of putting these kids to bed. And I could not, never understand why she'd put these kids to bed before they got to kiss Dad goodnight. And I'd come home and find them in bed. I'd get these kids out of bed and I'd turn that TV on. I'd open some Cokes, pop them some popcorn. Uh, and I don't know if you ever done any nice thing for your kids or not, but I've done a lot of nice things for my kids. But I, I always done it for the wrong reason. So they'd get on my side and tell their mother what a nice guy I was, and she'd get on my back and let me alone. But I, I'd pop this popcorn for him, and then I'd open me a couple beers, and I'd drink them, and I'd sit down and pass out. Then one have to get up and put these kids back to bed again. And I never saw how this was affecting my children in any way. I can remember many times this mother-in-law of mine 
but this time I, uh, I really hated her. She'd come over to get, pick up her grandchildren for the weekend. And I think one reason I hated my mother-in-law so bitterly is because she was doing the very things for my children that I wanted to do, but I could never get around to doing it because alcohol always got in the way. And she'd be over gathering up these grand, her grandchildren, take them over to her house for the weekend, maybe take them to a circus, take them to a picture show. And sometimes I'd let her have them, sometimes I wouldn't, depending on how drunk I was. Many a time I've run her out of the house and told her to get the hell out. Who do you think you are taking my children out of this house without my permission? Now, I wonder what these kids must have thought when they saw their drunken father run their grandmother out of the house. And you and I'd come to the next day. Alcohol never once ever allowed me to think about what I had done to these children, what a fool I'd made of myself, how I'd embarrassed that mother-in-law. Alcohol told me it was my mother-in-law's fault. If she just had the decency to pick up the telephone, call me, and ask permission to have the children, I would have said yes, and everything would have been fine. That's that ability to turn things around and blame somebody else. Shortly before I come in, I was down at the tavern one day, and uh, some drunk had caught a bunch of turtles. And we cooked up this big batch of turtle soup that day, and I got to think it was about 11.30 at night, and I thought, I wonder if one of fed them kids today. So... I said, I better take some soup home for these kids. And I brought that soup home, and I got these kids out of bed at 11.30 at night, and I set them down at the kitchen table. I put that soup on the stove, and I heated that up, but I can't stand the smell of turtle soup. But this was a big deal that night. And I poured that soup out, and I said, now eat. And they didn't, they didn't want to eat that soup that night. One reason they didn't is we had a turtle aquarium in our living room. I think the kids thought I'd cooked their turtles, but... Uh, I said, you, you are going to eat. It's good for you. I don't care what your mother says. And I got to slapping the two old, oldest ones around that night, and I made them eat that soup, and they got sick and threw up, and it was a mess that night. And, you know, once again, when I come to the next morning, I never once ever thought about what I had done to these children. Once again, alcohol did not allow me to think about that. Alcohol told me it was Juanita's fault. If she'd kept her big mouth shut, the kids would have loved that soup, and everything would have been fine. That isn't true. One, he was not even out in the kitchen that night. That's where alcohol took me. And it was about this time that uh, uh, my brother found AA. My brother lived on Skid Row for four or five years. He walked into the central office in Louisville one time and wanted some help. And AA people gathered around Norman, and they took him to my mom and dad's home, and they sat with him 24 hours a day for about a week before Norman sobered up, and then they began to take him to meetings. Norman was sober about, I don't know, six or eight weeks, and he began to stop by and tell me about this program. And I, God had his hands on Norman's shoulder when he talked with me. Uh, Norman never once ever think about, said anything about me being an alcoholic, uh, or I should go to meetings. Norman never talked that way. Norman knows what I would have done. If he would ever mention one time about me having a drinking problem, I would have told him where he could have taken his AA and what he could have done with it. And Norman knew that, I think. And God had his hands on Norman's shoulder and he talked with me. Norman always talked about what this program was doing in his life. He talked about you people. He talked about his home group. And he used to stop down at the tavern and see me. I'd where I spent most of my time was at Wolford's Tavern, and he'd tell me about this program, about what was happening in his life. And God, I, I loved this for him because my brother and I were very close, and I'd seen what had happened in his life. And I thought it was just great for him. Now, one of wasn't talking that way. One of was trying to get Norman to take me to AA, and he said, it just doesn't work that way. Bob will have to call and ask for help before I can take him. And Norman, uh, one of said, hell, he'll die first. He'll never ask for help. And Norman said, well, he may have to die then. That's just the way it has to be. But one of didn't give, wasn't giving up, and I think she tricked me into my first AA meeting. I'll let you make that decision after you hear uh, the story here in a few minutes. But Norman had been sober eight months, and he and I had planned a fishing trip. We was going to be gone for a week. And it, well, I think one of seized it, and she said this was her opportunity to, uh, to pounce on me. And... Uh, she said, you're going to go down there to come relate, and you're going to wind up getting Norman drunk. I said, no, I've already talked with Norman. I told him that I may drink a beer or two while I'm down there, and he assured me it would not bother him as long as he didn't drink it. 
And she said, yeah, but you're going to say something that may cause him to start drinking. And if you really love Norman like you say you do, what you ought to do is call him and see if you can go to one of those meetings with him, and maybe you can help him stay sober in some way. And I, I thought about that for a minute. I said, well, I wouldn't mind going if it would help him. And she said, well, you'll have to call him. So I get on the phone, call my brother, and say, uh, can I go to one of those meetings with you? And man, he was delighted. He thought I wanted some help. And, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget that night. Uh, we rode out about 30 miles out to a group in Vine Grove. And these three guys, they, that was withered, they talked all the way out there, and I didn't know what they were talking about. But we got to that meeting that night, and they didn't have a regular meeting. They played a tape of a southeastern speaker that night. And it wouldn't have made any difference to me if Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob would have both been both at that meeting. It would not have impressed me in any way. There was nothing wrong with me. I wasn't looking for any help. Anyway, I got back that night, and I shook my finger in my wife's face. I said, you'll never take another night out of my life. And I went out and got drunk that night. And one of you called Norman the next day and said, Bob didn't get a whole lot out of that meeting last night, but he'd like to go with you all Friday night. <laughs> and uh, Norman said he does. And she said, yeah, he wants to go. And, and I went that Friday night, and I, I guess that Tuesday night that we went to that meeting, I don't know if the seed of AA was planted that night, or was that divorce still hanging on my head, or was it a combination of both. But we went back to the meeting Friday night, and uh, it was shortly after this that my wife was introduced to the program of Al-Anon. Thank God for the program of Al-Anon. I really believe I come into AA through the doors of Al-Anon. Had it not been the help that Wani found in Al-Anon, I'm sure I would have drank myself to death. I'm going to tell you a few of the things that Juanita did. I think she went a little far in her program with some of the things that she did. Uh, but I'm going to tell you about a couple of them. Uh, they have this in Al-Anon release with love. And uh, after she went to a few Al-Anon meetings, I'd come home and she'd say, Hi, did you have a nice day? I thought, man, this, this, this program's getting this gal straightened out, you know. She normally didn't talk to me that way. And... And, and I'd babysit for her lots of times so she'd get to her Al-Anon meetings. But when I found out a lot of things in Al-Anon, thank God that she did. She found out she wasn't responsible for my drinking. She wasn't going to be the one to stop me from drinking. And uh, she would give you an example of a couple of things she used to do. Uh, there's a department store in Louisville we used to buy our kids' clothes at called Bacon's. And the credit manager there used to call us every month. That woman was always wanting money from us because we weren't kept charging things we wasn't paying. But... Uh, before Al-Anon, one uh, of used to lie to her all the time, and I would too. We'd tell her, you know, one of the kids are sick, we'll double up next month. You know, all the excuses you can come up with. Not after Al-Anon. One of say, I'm sorry, I don't handle the bills any longer. You have to talk to Mr. Wessel about this, and you can catch him down at Wolford's Tavern. Number so-and-so. One gave her the number. And, and, and I'd be sitting down there at that bar, a couple bucks thrown up on the bar drinking with my buddies, you know. And you try to explain to some credit manager why you can't send them $10 and still like a big shot in front of your buddies, I tell you, it gets to be a problem. And man, I resented this, and I drank more and more over these things. Uh, I remember I, I, when I was drinking, I always had two jobs. With his mother-in-law and I had another job, I was in sales, and I spent 11 years with that company. And uh, uh, <coughs> my boss called one morning. Before I'd left town, and uh, I knew who it was, and I told one, I said, tell him I've already left town. I don't want to talk to him. She didn't. She told my boss, she uh, said, he's still laying here in bed drunk. You want to talk to him? He had me the telephone. And you try to explain that to your boss after your wife says you're still drunk. You, know, you can't explain things like that. Needless to say, I lost that job about six months thereafter. But you know, when I, when I was first introduced to AA, I was 28 years old, and after I made a few meetings, I heard people talk from the podiums like this, and uh, I began to put everything together, and I could have proved to you in black and white why I was not an alcoholic, because I had too much going for me. I was 28 years old. Uh, I still worked for my mother-in-law. I went into another business, an own business, had this job I spent 11 years with, with. Uh, had a couple automobiles. Had a nice house that one and these kids lived in. That's all it was, a house that her and I and these kids existed in. It was not a home as it is today. Had a little money in the bank. Now, if anyone would have told me, Bob, in two and a half years, all this is going to be gone. You're going to wind up with a shotgun in your hand, almost killing your 
wife, your children, or your mother-in-law, I would have said you're nuts. I wouldn't let any one thing like this happen. But you see, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. The only thing I'd done right in the next two and a half years is I kept going to AA. I made a lot of AA meetings drinking. I don't know if anyone tonight had to take a drink, walk through that door. If you did it, I understand it because I've been there. I don't say it's the right thing for you to do, but if you had to do it, I understand it. I'm going to tell you about a gal that really saved my life, a gal by the name of Lil Nyland. And Lil's gone on to the big meeting now. Uh, she used to get me off every Friday night when I go out to that Pleasant Ridge group. She'd get me off in the corner after the meeting, and she'd put her arms around me, and she'd hold me, and she'd say, Bob, you have faith. Keep coming back. This program will work for you. We want you here. We need you here. Please come back. Thank God Lil said those words to me. You know, if Lil would have said, Bob, you're, you know you're drinking tonight when you really want to sober up, you come on back to A then. You know what I would have told Lil. You know, after I was around AA for all a few months, I run into a guy that uh, had been in and out of AA, and of course, naturally me not wanting to stop drinking, we, we, we paired up real quickly, and he told me about this vodka. You know, I, I'm a beer drinker. I, I drank beer most of the time. My last drunk was a beer drunk, but, you know, after I got in AA, it was a little, little uh, inconvenient to hide a case of beer. It was a little bit easier, you know, to hide that half pint. And he told me about this vodka, and I got on vodka, and uh, I drank vodka all day, and I went to AA meetings at night, and I, they said you can't smell that stuff, and I didn't want to take a chance whether you could or couldn't smell it. So I chewed Clorets, and I, I bought that stuff a, a case at a time, and I'd pull up to meeting you know, such as this, and I'd reach over and grab that half pint, take a couple chugs off of it, you know. I'd reach over and grab that pack of Clorets, and I'd dump the whole pack in. And my sponsor... Used to say all the time when I come through that door and you saw that green foam run out of my mouth. You knew, <laughs> you knew what kind of shape I was in. And, that, and that's the way I was for two and a half years. I had no idea that anyone around AA knew that I was drinking. I thought I had everybody fooled. Uh, after about a year, I, I lost that house at one end I live in. And, uh, we was behind several months on the payments, and uh, me being in real estate business, I couldn't sell it. I was too busy down drinking, you know. My mother-in-law sold the house for me. And if you think I wasn't insane, this mother-in-law that I hated, we, could not, we couldn't stay in the same room together. I talked my mother-in-law into buying a house, and we'd all move in together. And... I had that thing all figured out. My mother-in-law had been paying most of the bills, you know, raising these children. I figured, you know, we move in together, hell, she didn't pay them all, you know. And I really thought that thing would work. But we moved in together, and my mother-in-law got sicker in three months, and one of did in 15 years living with me, and she took off. Uh, I lost those automobiles. I lost that money we had in the bank. I lost that job that I'd spent 11 years with. And... Uh, my boss, boss's brother, who was in AA, and George died sober a few years back, but George called me one Friday night. He called me home, and he told me I'd been fired from that job. I said, I've been, I've been working down in eastern Kentucky for three weeks, uh, working my fingers to the bone. Y'all fire me. And George knew that I was lying, and... He said he knew that I'd been drinking and I'd been fired. And I got to crying crocodile tears to George that night because I was thinking about my responsibility as a father and my responsibility as a husband. And George said, let me talk to my brother and see what I can do for you, Bob. It wasn't 15 minutes and George called me back and said, I've got everything all straightened out for you. You come on into work Monday morning. And I thanked George that night and I told him he'd never have to worry about me taking another drink. I'll never drink again. George should have known I couldn't keep that promise. Never is a long time. Thank God we have one day in the program, in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't drink anything that Friday night or Saturday or Sunday. I was too scared to drink. I started in the office Monday morning, and I got to thinking. Thinking's bad for this alcoholic. I got to think about what my boss was going to say. I knew what he was going to say. I could have written a script out for him. Anyway, I, I couldn't face him without a drink, and I stopped and had a drink that morning, and I don't know how much I drank that morning, but later that day, I walked in the office, I walked in my boss's office, walked up to his desk, I took the keys 
the door out of my pocket and I threw them on his desk and I said, you keep your damn job, I don't need it. And I turned around and walked out and this man had opened his mouth. And to me, that is chronic alcoholism. When I was dry that Friday, I was concerned about these seven children. And I was concerned about being a, being a father and I was concerned about being a husband. And when I put a little alcohol in my system, I was no longer concerned about this. It was shortly after this that I took what I hope is my last drunk. And I, my first sponsor, who died with 38 years of sobriety, always uh, instilled in me that if I can't remember my last drunk, I may not have had it yet. And I'm going to tell you about my last drunk, and I'm going to tell you about some recovery. Uh, I've been around AA for about two and a half years, and once again I went down to Cumberland Lake, and uh, uh, I forgot to tell Juanita and kids and mother where I, her her mother where I was going and I come back I don't know a week or two weeks later and my key didn't didn't fit locks at the house and uh, my mother-in-law told me to get off her property uh, she had a bench warrant out for me and this didn't really concern me so I just go over to the tavern and decide what to do about this and you can get all kind of information over there on what you should do in cases like this and, and I drank beer that entire day at about 7.30 at night, I was drunk enough, and I decided that my mother-in-law cannot lock me out of my house. She don't have that right. So I went over to the house to tell her she couldn't lock me out. My key still didn't fit. So I just knocked the door down to show her how tough I was. And I can vaguely remember my mother-in-law giving me one more change. She said, Bob, if you don't get off the property, I'm going to have you arrested. And you know what I said to her? That's a fine thing to do, have your son-in-law arrested. Who's going to feed these seven kids? And she let me know who had been feeding them the last three or four years, I'll tell you. And she called the police on me that night. And I decided I'm going to show her. And thank God tonight I don't show anybody anything. I'm, all I do is be myself, Bob Wessel. I'm an alcoholic just like I am. If you like me, that's fine. If you don't like me, that's your problem. Because I'm pretty comfortable the way things are in my life today. But I set out that night to show my mother-in-law she couldn't call the police on me. I went down to the basement got my 12-gauge shotgun. It's a Browning Automatic. I remember picking up two boxes of shells, and I don't know what I was going to do with two boxes of shells, but I remember putting three shells in that gun, and I'd hear that chamber slamming right now. Next thing I vaguely remember is I stumbled up that stairway, swinging that gun around. It's kids running and screaming, get, get away from our drunken maniac father. And it's a miracle that gun didn't go off that night. And thank God my mother-in-law and I didn't come face to face that night. She'd gone into her room to get her gun. She was going to get rid of the problem that night. <laughs> And uh, I stumbled on up the stairway that night, went upstairs, and we got a big three-story house, and I went up into the attic. It was a warm November night, and I was sitting up there, and nobody up there bothered me, and I felt warm and secure that night. And I'm sure every alcoholic in this room has felt that way. You know, it wasn't alcohol that caused me problems. It was people that caused me problems. And I, I was convinced that night that's what it was. The next thing I vaguely remember is someone in a blue uniform. One, he said, I told that policeman I was going to blow his head off with that shotgun if he came up the stairway that night. Now, he couldn't see me. The thing he didn't know is I couldn't see him either but because uh, uh, I was too drunk. But he closed the door, and they called out the right squad that night. And we live on a, on a hill in the, uh, on the corner lot, and the driveway goes all the way around the house, and they said it was police cars out there. They had sirens blasting. They had searchlights on the building. And uh, they were going to shoot tear gas up in that attic and get me out of there that night. And the only reason they didn't, they did not know where our children were that night. But a lot of miracles began to take place that night. I'd been around AA for two and a half years. And uh, over at that Pleasant Ridge group, the telephone is locked up. You cannot get to the telephone over there. It's in the pastor's office. But that night, this happened about 730. It would have happened 30 minutes later. One of them would not have been there to call AA for me. But uh, the women of the sewing circle was meeting over at the church that night, and they, they needed a place to meet, and they, they met where al normally meet. And the pastor came over and opened his office that night so al would have a place to meet. And one of them called AA for me that night. This was an 8.30 meeting at that group, and this happened about 7.30. If it would have happened 30 minutes later, one of would not have been there to call AA for me. My brother was at the meeting that night, and... Bill and Lawrence, and uh, a fellow named Father Mac, who had uh, uh, 
going in the priesthood, and he had an alcoholic in his parish, and he was over that night to uh, trying to get some information about alcoholism. And to my knowledge, that's the first AA meeting. It's the last AA meeting he's ever been to. But he come over that night, and these AA people, and they talked the police into leaving, and uh, uh, they talked my mother-in-law, giving up her gun, put her to bed, and they come up, Bill and uh, Lawrence come up and talked me in giving up my shotgun. And then they took took me out and began to pour a little coffee down me, and I began to come to once again just a little bit. I've been around AA for two and a half years. As I began to put a little thinking together, I went back that same old way of thinking alcohol's told me to think a thousand times. This was not my fault, once again. My mother-in-law's fault. This would not have happened if she hadn't called these police, and I believed that that night. But these guys convinced me that I was in trouble that night, and if I didn't go into the hospital... If I stayed out on the street, I was going to be arrested. So I agreed to go for one night, and I wouldn't even go to bed that night. And they gave me a shot and put me to bed. And I went down the next morning to check out of that hospital because I was just going to stay that night. And it's a strange hospital. I got out of my room, okay, and I went down the long hallway to the hallway door. And uh, when they built that hospital, they didn't put any doorknobs on those doors. And, <laughs> and, uh, and man, that door was locked. And then I realized where I was. And I said, I'll get even with these guys if it's the last thing I do. But God works in strange ways in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I run the next day, the psychiatrist come in and talk to me, and I'm not at all downing the medical profession. This man was a good psychiatrist and could have helped me if I would have given him a chance. But I told him what he could do with his books. And Anyway, he called my wife that afternoon and said, I'm afraid your husband would die hopeless drunk. He didn't want any help. Thank God the people in the A didn't believe that. A lot, of, a lot of AA people coming in the hospital to see me for help. I sit in the hospital at night in the dark. I would not burn their lights. You with an attitude like that, you ought to die drunk. But I never will forget my sponsor coming in. Bill flipped those lights on. He had a few choice words to say to me I can't repeat in this podium. And I knew what Bill wanted to hear, and I knew what all you people coming out of the hospital to see me wanted to hear. And I told you what you wanted to hear. I'm coming back to AA. Uh, I realize what's happened. What I really thought was, get the hell out of here and let me alone. I don't need your help. I can handle this myself. But I said God works in strange ways in this program. My three drinking buddies, I'm going to tell you about them. Lawrence and Jerry and Marsh. Marsh is in AA and sober today. Uh, Jerry and Lawrence are not fortunate. They both died because of alcoholism, but... These three drinking buddies are more important to me than my family. And after I, I got out of the hospital, I began to wonder, why did they not come to the hospital to see me? Why didn't they bring me something to drink and come on in here? I know tonight why they didn't. Had they done that, it would have given me the very encouragement that I needed to take another drink. And I can do that. That's no problem at all. But I don't know if i got another recovery or not. That's terribly important to me. So it was my three drinking buddies that really woke me up. It made me realize the people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous care about you. My drinking buddies didn't even care. So I went in and talked to my sponsor that day. I went to the tavern first. That's when I began to do all this thinking. And for some reason, I didn't take a drink that morning. I got up off that bar stool, and I went in and talked to my sponsor that day. And Bill told me about honesty and gratitude, hoping, minding this willingness. He told me about action. He told me about a higher power he called God, and I do too. And They'll say, Bob, look what's happened to you over the last couple of years. And we took a little inventory, and I looked back, and it wasn't a very pretty picture. And they'll say, why don't you try it our way for six or eight weeks and see if you can't find something? And I thought, well, that's, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll get, get in AA, and six or eight weeks, I'll get this job back, and my mother-in-law my back, get Juanita back, and uh, get back in the household, you know, and then I can go back to this successful drinking I've been doing. And that was on the 9th of November, 1962, and I've not had a drink of alcohol since that time. You know, after I, I started going to meetings and uh, things began to happen, I think what happened, I said for a number of years around this program, I really didn't know what happened, uh, uh, but I got, the, I got the idea that I really wanted to stay sober. But I think I do know what happened. I think I began to apply the principles of this program, these 12 steps in my life. And uh, 
I began to apply these to my life, and great things began to happen. Uh, I, I wish I could tell you it's just been a bed of roses, but, but it's been a tough journey. But I want to tell you about the, these children. It's turned this, op- uh, this opportunity of raising these nine children around, an uh, opportunity that I have really enjoyed. It was, it was a big responsibility raising nine children. And when I was drinking, I hated every minute of it because it took, took money to feed these kids and clothe them, but I, which I'd rather been spending that money on myself. But after AA, it's been such a, it's been such a journey uh, raising these nine children. Uh, you know, I was, I was sober about three and a half years, and uh, my father died. And I had a great sponsor, Bill. My sponsor, Bill, was sober 38 years before he died. And uh, Bill come down to that funeral home to see me that day. And I was feeling sorry for myself. And Bill told me what a lucky guy I was and how grateful I should be. And I didn't know what he was talking about at first. And Bill said, you know, you've been sober three and a half years, and you've been able to share all this with your dad before he, before he died. I was able to take that situation around and had something to be grateful for I can tell you I'm grateful and I can tell you I love you, but I think these are things that we see and we feel on a one-to-one basis when we look at one alcoholic looks into another alcoholic's eyes. And I've got a perfect example of this gratitude. This mother-in-law of mine, uh, and I'll I tell you what a great woman she was. Uh, we almost killed one another, but after I sobered up, my mother-in-law come to every one of my AA birthdays for 13 years before she died. In the last five years, my mother-in-law was too sick to get out of bed, but she'd come over to that group to be with me on my AA birthday. And on my fifth AA birthday, my mother-in-law walked out in the office, and she said, Bob, you've been sober five years now. I think you can handle your half the business again. Never asked me for a penny. I glanced down at those papers. I saw what it was. I was half owner of the business again. And I jumped up and put my arms around her and kissed her and hugged her, and she no, she no more turned around and began to walk away. And I began to think, what the hell does she have to wait five years to do this for? <laughs> and, uh, I know tonight why my mother-in-law had to wait five years, because I know me very well. You know, she'd been out there, you know, in five months doing this. I'd been saying, you know, she can't run this place without me. Look how important I am. And, you know, I'd been, been back on that merry-go-round and been drinking and, and probably would have never sobered up. And I found in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the things I have to work for and the things I have to earn are the things I owe nearest and dearest to my heart. Like my sobriety, I work for my sobriety. I'm a member of the 31W group. I'm a member in good standing. And uh, I chair meetings there. Uh, I don't pick up ashtrays anymore. It's a non-smoking group. But I help make coffee and I clean up the coffee cups and help put the literature out and put it away. And I, I, I'm a part of. And Wani and I are still doing the very same things that we, we've been doing for so many years. And uh, I like to talk about my length of sobriety. I've been sober 39 years. It'll be 40 years on the uh, 9th of November. Uh, but I, I, like, I like to talk about it. So. And I'll assure you I'm not bragging about my length of sobriety. Because if I was, you know, when, I, when one of you thinks I am, you know what she tells me? Yeah, if you'd have listened to me, you'd have 42 years. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I do like, like to talk about length of sobriety. I think it's important that people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous know that there are a lot of people staying sober. And I, I don't think it makes really any difference how long you've been sober, whether it's 39 years or 20 years or 10 or 5. Probably somebody in this room just been sober a year or six months or maybe somebody just a month. Might be the very person in this room tonight just been sober one day. If that's true, I think you stand the same thing, chance that I have. It's the beginning of a new way of life for you. And I think that's what this program has to offer all of us. Uh, and I, we now have 18 grandchildren. I'm going to talk a little bit about my grandchildren, and I'm going to hush up. Uh, I love to talk about my grandchildren. Uh, uh, I got the opportunity to see a grandson born into this world. I don't know if any of you guys have ever had that opportunity or not, but if you haven't and you ever get the chance to, please take advantage of it. Uh, I never got that opportunity to see any, any of my children born, born in this world because back then they did not allow the, the husbands back in the delivery room. 
In fact, when two of my children was born, they didn't allow me in the hospital. Uh, uh, so I got, I got this opportunity to see this grandson born in this world. And I, I, I was a little scared. I didn't know, I'd never experienced anything like this. But Mary Rose one and one and I both back there. And when, when that boy was crowned and popped out, I thought the doctor was going to miss him, but he grabbed him, you know. And they took him over and cleaned him up, and it wasn't but a minute. And Juanita and I both got to hold that baby in our arms. And you don't, you don't get any closer to God in that when a new baby's born into this world. And I want to tell you about a, a, another granddaughter, a granddaughter that I've got, an adopted granddaughter. Uh, my second oldest daughter, our second oldest daughter, Pam, is, is never married. And I've always been concerned about Pam's happiness. I thought she needed a husband to be happy. Uh, she didn't think so, but uh, uh, she dates guys, and if they get serious, she backs off. She, she's very successful in the business that she's in. And Pam come out one day and said she wanted to adopt a baby. And I thought, well, why don't you get married and do it like one and I done it, you know. And, uh, Pam said uh, she's going to adopt this baby from Paraguay. It's a Grani Indian baby. And... Uh, she had to have our permission to do it because Pam's a single mother. And uh, we signed the papers, Juanita and I both did, and Juanita and Pam went to Paraguay to adopt this baby. And uh, they said they'd be gone about two weeks, and about seven weeks later they got back. They don't leave you out of there once they get you over there very easily. And uh, Emily was five months old when uh, they, got, they got this baby, and when they arrived in, back in the airport in Louisville, I got to hold this baby. And she's got those uh, big eyes. She's got that smile from ear to ear and those big eyes, you know, and black hair. And just, she kind of won me over. And uh, when Emily was 18 months old, I got the opportunity to take Emily and her mother Pam to Washington, D.C. We went in our motor home. And uh, it's close quarters in the motor home, you know. And we, we was out shopping one day, and Emily messed in her diaper. And Pam said, I'm going to take her back and clean her up. I said, no, y'all go on with your shopping. You let me do this. I took Emily back to the motor home and cleaned her up, and we didn't go back shopping. We laid down, and that little girl put her arms around me, and I put my arms around her, and we laid there and bonded that day. And, you know, I never got this opportunity to bond with any of my children. And I know God never takes anything away. He don't always have something in return. Uh, I was too busy drinking. And after AA, I was too busy going to AA and too busy working trying to make up for all I had thrown away to even bond with the last two children that was born. But God gave me this opportunity to bond with Emily, and it's, it's been a blessing. Uh, you know what? Uh, in these 39 years, it's just been, been a tremendous journey. And uh, I'm, I'm going to close with a, a letter that my youngest daughter wrote to me. Uh, and to Juanita, it's a letter that she wrote when she was uh, out in California. And uh, Teresa had the, was an excellent field hockey player. She had an opportunity to go to the Olympics, to try out for the Olympic team, and she made the Olympic team. And uh, she was gone for all about six or eight weeks, and... Uh, after she made a team, she found out she wasn't going to get to come home for Thanksgiving, wasn't going to get home for Christmas. And she wrote this letter to Juanita and I. And in, in this little letter, if I can get through it, it'll tell you in a couple minutes here of what the program of AA Al-Anon and Alateen has brought into this home. You've, you know what devastation I brought into this house because of my alcoholism. Here's a letter that Teresa wrote. It said, I wanted to tell you all one more time how much I appreciated the trip to the Olympic Training Center. It's wonderful that you all love me so much and to let me experience what I have through hockey camps. To me, home is the most wonderful place. You all have made home to be a place where love is self-existing. I love to just hang around the house because the members of the family are always stopping me by to say hello. Our home is like a gathering place, and you all have cultivated that attitude. Hope you all are not disappointed in me because of my choice to come home instead of staying for the Olympic camp. I thought I did what was best for me. 
I know I was determined to stay, but it just didn't seem to be the right thing to do. I'm very lucky to have parents like you. You always support me, and that's a great feeling. I can't count the number of times my friends have commented on the love you give me. I hope I can give enough love back because you always seem to be giving. The two of you are always ready to drop everything when Mary and I take the hockey field. No matter where we travel, it always is topped off by your presence. It's so nice to have you all cheer and yell. I hope when I get older and married with kids that I will be able to provide the love and support that you have provided me with. And that daughter now has two children, and she is providing that love and support to those two children. Well, have a nice convention, and make sure you send the ones I know my love. Have a safe trip. I love you all very much. Love your daughter, Teresa. And that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has done in this household. You know, I, I start my days the same every morning. My sponsor, a 38-year sobriety before he died, asked me to do this when I first come back to AA. They'll ask me to ask God to help me each day to stay away from that first drink. And I, I've done that for a little over 39 years now. I ask God to help me each day to stay away from that first drink, and he's done it with the help of the AA people. And also Bill asked me to ask God to help me accept what he's going to give me that day. And I don't, I don't always do so good with that. I, I do pretty good when I get what I want. But, you know, when things don't go my way, I'm very quick to rebel and say, what's the use, and you'll fall back on that, that old pity pot again. And that's the reason I'm still a an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill also asked me to thank God at night. When I lay my head on that pillow, I thank God for what he's given me this day. This day of sobriety is most important to me. This family is wife of a little over 50 years now. I'll tell you a little bit about this. That reminds me. We've been married 50 years. And back on June the 23rd. And we had a big 50-year reunion in Louisville. And uh, we had a big celebration down at the Galt House. And it's something I want to remember 50 years with this lady. And we invited a lot of people. Uh, I don't know, that was about 400 people there. And about 395 of those was AA and Al-Anon members. And people drove down from Cincinnati and northern Kentucky and... Uh, it was, it was quite a celebration. It was not only a celebration for this 50 years of marriage, it was a celebration of, of the friends that I've accumulated in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I lay my head on that pillow tonight, I, I'll think about these people and thank God for what he has given me. And I thank you all for listening and inviting us up. And uh, uh, this thing's over now, and now the fun's going to start. Thank you very much. <laughs>